ACR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. We also recognise that current efforts by the Victorian government to create a treaty with Victoria's First Nation people are diminished by the state's choice to not recognise First Nation sovereignty within this legislative. And so with that, we start the show. Mm. How are we all? Firstly, welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. It's the 16th of October. It is. Um, Already. Already. Too quick. We're spiralling into summer before we know it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to miss my jumpers. You're going to miss your jumpers? Will's Will's actually um, sporting a rather nice jumper at the moment. It's got a... It's got... Is it blue? Is it turquoise? Uh, Green and purple. And and little bits of orange orange. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got all of these little colours here, but it's not, it's not like loud or anything. I quite like it. The flex, the flex of orange are lovely. Mm, mm. Yeah. It could be like one of those, like, eye challenges, like, is the, is the jumper red or is it green? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, there's a new one. Have you seen the one with the sneaker? Yeah. There's like a, it's like a really poorly, that's the thing though. These people take really poor quality photos. Um, really compressed photos of various items, and now it's a mm. sneaker. Mm. And people are saying, if you're left-brained, then you'll see this as white and pink, <laughs> and if you're right-brained, then you'll see this as teal and grey. <laughs> and my thought is, no. If you take a better camera, everyone will see it as the same darn colour. What colour? White and per- pink, or? It, well, no. I'm I'm apparently no. Sorry, I mixed up. I'm left-brained, oh, so I'm right-handed. Right. I'm not creative, <laughs> and I'm not one of the elect who is like <laughs> cool and clever and can see the right colours. Just. just just for the audience, if you don't know what we're talking about, we are talking about the uh, famous blue and gold dress. Is that correct? That was, there was basically a yeah, there's yeah. a dress that broke the internet a few yeah, years ago, yeah. and it, there seems to be like I think people are now yeah. just trying to be the next, trying yeah. to trying to recreate that yeah. fame for yeah. themselves. It's uh, just like a yeah. meme of poorly, poorly preserved, preserved digital media mm, yeah. that people interpret in different ways depending on you know, what state they are when they see the picture. Remember, um, there was like an audio recording that you would listen to and some people, if you had high pitch perception, would hear Yanny and people who had low pitch perception would hear Laurel because it was just a really low quality, um, low quality audio recording. And so there's like some sort of audio artifact from like Mm. compression and whatever. The thing yeah. is, is it going to keep having enduring value just because people always want to argue being like, no, I heard Yanni or no, I heard Laurel. So it's kind of like, are they ever going to go? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. No, no, no they won't until the <laughs> internet collapses in on itself, <laughs> which we can only hope is, you all know. Of, all of these <laughs> nonsense memes that ruin, like, waste people's times. Yeah. <laughs> but we love them. Well, besides <laughs> nonsense memes, what have we been up to this week? Yeah. Um, what, do you, what about you, Will? Has there been anything interesting going on? Um, any cool shows? No, I was sick. So oh. I to do it. No, I went to see I went to see comedy at the um uh what is that place called? It's the mm. one on Errol Street near the IGA. Errol Street IGA place. Uh, it's mm. a comedy the comedy okay. sh- the, not the comedy shop the comedy lounge. There we go. Comedy lounge. The comedy lounge, and it's known for being a place where you get a lot of very shall we say broad humour, mm. um, and people saying very interesting things. Oh. Um, we only stayed for the first half, and everyone was a white man, um, right. including the audience, lol. 
Um, no, and it was it was fine. It was really cheap. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say it's the worst place I've ever been. Um, weirdly, Spleen feels more welcoming. Spleen, <laughs> Spleen Bar on um on Burke Street, where they okay. have comedy on Monday nights, and that's free at least, which is nice. Ooh, yeah, we do like that on student budgets. Mm. Yeah, we do. Um, would add, would recommend good good comedy night, although similar kind of a bit touch and go with the kind of comedy that you get. Like sometimes it's quality sometimes it's edgy spab yeah like yeah. edgy but in a, in a way that's not particularly thoughtful no mm. no yeah. you, you have to have thoughtful edgy to be able to pull off edgy otherwise yeah. it's just it doesn't anyway, quite how, how you communicate uh, i'm no longer a student <gasps> i've finished you graduated Gra- uh, i will graduate next year but i'm Woo! done <laughs> my <laughs> last class last assignments i've passed it's done yes, <laughs> yes. so yeah, i've literally just been pondering life and what's next mm. My week, my week has been like um, coming down off my last presentation. Uh, but the problem was my last presentation was about ice cream. So what? now, uh, and the ice cream industry, because I had to do this oh. stupid marketing program. We had to do this marketing thing. Anyway, um, because of that, I've just been kind of walking around being like, you know, do you know that the average Australian <laughs> has 5.1 kilograms of ice cream per year? <laughs> and just, just spreading out fun <laughs> ice cream facts to people. <laughs> and Sorry, like, 5.1 kilograms per year? Kilograms per year. Oh, oh. I need to reflect on this. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I just yeah. above average. <laughs> 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 yeah, so there's, there's just some that that's kind of been my 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 knowledge factor. Also, started a really cool mm. um, podcast. Not going to be endorsing it, but it's, I, I'm enjoying it because I'm a bit of a history nerd. It's called mm. "You're Dead to Me," inspired the person who did um, horrible histories. Oh. What, yeah, well, yeah, but um, or at least the TV show. Yeah. But what it does is it gets a historian and it gets a comedian, and they kind of break it down. So they're making history conceivable. Mm. And um, ah, I've learned about uh, like. The history of witches. Uh, there is a fantastic one on contemporary um, LGBT, LGBTQ plus kind of history, mm, mm. which is quite comprehensive, and they kind of go over a whole lot of different, really different areas. Oh, okay. Um, so it sounds like the sort of approach in history topics, which aren't just like the Tudors and the Stuarts. No, no. So they're doing they're doing like big big names, but mm. also they're doing like kind of small niches, which you're yeah, like, ooh, that's great. interesting. Sure. Um, and it's 47 minutes long too, so they're giving it like enough yeah, time. Yeah. Anyway, what's it called again? It's called You're Dead to Me. Mm. But, um, mm. yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to get more into podcasts. I'm really bad at podcasts. podcasts so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm trying to take a leaf out of Will's book and just kind of um, embrace the podcast. Nice. Podcast goodness. Yeah. Podcast goodness, yeah. Yeah. Well, my week was watching Harry Potter play, which was <laughs> full of magic. Wow. Um, but it was a weird kind of play. Like, it was good, but it was kind of like, I felt like they had a brainstorming session of, like, what are all the special effects that we could do in a play that no one's ever done before and chuck them all in. <laughs> so it was like, there was like a lot of the special effects. Like, it, it got to the stage where I was so distracted by all the special effects <laughs> that I stopped following the plot and being like, how did they do that thing where that person flew across? And so I kind of <laughs> lost direction. I was understanding what was happening, mm. but it was still good. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But that was that, that's an endurance test too. Sorry, right? That it's like six hours oh, overall. Gosh. It's in two parts. It's oh, yeah. yeah, it's a long go. Mm. Um, <laughs> Shall we go through the show? Yeah. So what yeah. have we got on for today? So, so we're starting off with an interview with Adam from King Lake Friends of the Great Forest. Um, Adam's going to be telling us about um, their King Lake Friends of the Great Forest recent action to stop uh, logging in in the Murrindindi State Forest area. 
and we're going to be talking about the value of the forest and also what's happened mm. since the end of the logging there. Um, and then after that, we're speaking to Deborah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So then we'll be talking to Deborah Brown. She's from the Association for Progressive Communications. Uh, we'll be talking to her about the latest crackdown, crackdowns on civil society in Egypt. That comes as there's been a six-year ban on demonstrations in Egypt under mm. the president. So we'll just be talking about that with her. Mm. Interesting. That's right. And then we'll be hearing a quick snippet from um, Indigenous Rights Radio from Cultural Survival. Today's uh, World Food Day. We'll be talking about Indigenous food and um, the the importance of Indigenous food system and knowledge. And then at 8? At 8 o'clock, we've got Tim from Amnesty International, and he'll be kind of following on uh, the strain of civil crackdown, um, Mm -hmm. civil rights, sorry, uh, kind of talking about the proposed religious uh, freedoms bill how dangerous it is, mm. and calling for a human rights act instead. But, um, yeah, just getting his breakdown on that. Mm. And then at 8.12, we're going to have Ishita Chatterjee, who's kind of an architect and researcher. He's going to be talking about some of, I guess, the common stereotypes about slums and informal settlements mm. and sort of mm. talking about how there's a lot of really interesting things to actually learn from informal settlements that we should actually be adopting more in Australia and worldwide. So that's our show for today. Mm-hmm. Nice, good mix. Good mix. <laughs> yeah. um, but up next, we have some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Boom, nitty-gritty, And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast at 3CR. So, uh, about maybe last week of September, um, Clive Palmer um, wrote a letter as claiming that he has been defamed by the comedian Friendly Jotties. Friendly Jotties is a political YouTuber. He's hilarious, in my opinion. Love him. Um, but he is suing Friendly Jotties for defaming him and making fun of him via humour, um, with things like um, fatty McFat. Um, mm. These sort of terms, um, bit of fun, but... Um, but also, like, significant political critique, yeah. let's, let's yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. call, out of, call out of Clive Palmer. Yeah, yeah no, um, and he's just basically, yeah, so half a million defamation lawsuit against friendly Jotties, and mm. just brings question to whether, you know, these multimillionaires, mm. uh, billionaires, um, you know, a small, politi- uh, small political sort of activist going out and, you know, slamming them. It's an, it's an interesting power dynamic, and that's what yeah. I think warrants it for alternative news, is it's kind of like, look at this huge, powerful guy mm-hmm. who just continues to talk about his money mm-hmm. and his influence and his ability to, like, trot on people, mm-hmm. on normal, everyday people. Um, and look at how insecure he is about this one guy on the internet complaining or critiquing him. So I guess that that's kind of the um, subversion of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rob, yeah. did you kind of have so many headlines for us? I, uh, I've done a very poor job this week. 
Um, so I don't have any alternative news, but oh. I won't. Do you have anything? Yes, I do, in fact. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> so my first kind of, uh, I'm going to be kind of covering very quickly uh, kind of emerging protest laws um, or the crackdown on uh, protest laws. So the first thing I would like to draw people's attention to is uh, the Melbourne Activist Legal Support page, which is a website, literally melbourneactivistlegalsupport.org, who have recently released a statement of concern of about the policing of Extinction Rebellion. Now, you can actually go to their website and read their full kind of list of problems but they list um, the fact that police cordoned and prevented hundreds of supporters from joining the protest. On This is the protest on September the 14th, uh, led by Extinction Rebellion. A second complaint was that media representatives, journalists and camera operators were directed by police to leave the cordoned protest area from 1 o'clock, which was the, meant the restriction of media and ability to film, interview and cover the protest event without uh, clearful lawful bias. And three, uh, and this was a really important one, they actually um, there was the obstruction of legal observers. So whilst legal observers were allowed into the protest, uh, there were some which were actually cordoned away from the protest. And Melbourne legal activists' support have really come out um, against this and really condemned the police for it. So that's going to be kind of um, my wrap-up. I think we'll be looking a little bit more into this in the coming weeks because the crackdown on protest laws is getting absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Um, a report uh, by Karen Mil- Middleton, which I kind of wanted to bring up um, in August, actually pointed out that currently law enforcement agencies have been taking kind of the sidestepping around courts for their usual um, warrants and surveillance warrants. So these are things like phone taps and email interceptions, and instead they're going through the AAT in about 78% of cases. Mm. So the AAT is the Administrative uh, Appeals Tribunal, It's a body that deals with a large group of people. Um, You would probably have heard of dealing with uh, situations such as asylum seekers and refugees. That's usually for fast-track processing. They have to go through the AAT. And it's come under significant critique. It's it's a sketchy organisation. Since the 2013 election, the government has appointed over 60 people with coalition affiliations in the AAT, and these are people who are underqualified for the job. Mm. So they have no real reason to be there um so we need to be i think we need to kind of raise awareness about this aat body and what it's doing to kind of facilitate uh people ministers like dutton's crackdown on public dissent and stuff like that and hopefully we'll be getting someone to talk about it because i think it's a shifty body that really really has way too much power at the moment in our political infrastructure and if you want to read more about it i know that quite cracky did a journalism inquiry about two weeks ago they did AAT. they did a comprehensive a one here series yeah so you can also find stuff in the monthly as well that as well mm. um but we're coming up to seven fifteen, so we're just going to go to some community service announcements and then we'll be ready for our first interview guitarist matthew fagan band and friends presents earth show a rock and classical journey across our living planet. It's a music and visual spectacular celebrating the one planet that we inhabit. Saturday the 9th of November at the Deacon Edge Federation Square. Concert starts at 8pm and an environment... Guitarist Matthew Fagan Band and Friends presents Earth Show. A rock and classical journey across our living planet. It's a music and visual spectacular, celebrating the one planet that we inhabit. Saturday the 9th of November at the Deacon Edge Federation Square. Concert starts at 8pm and an environment symposium, Our Shared Home, is on from 5pm. There's a 40% discount for 3CR subscribers, making your all-inclusive tickets just $33 for adults 
$30 concession and $24 for students. Plus booking fee and don't forget to book in with the 3CR subscriber code 3CR20. Go to www.matthew-fagan.com. A 3CR supporter. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. The Kevin Hines Grow 40th Anniversary Spring Festival will be held on Saturday the 19th of October, 9am to 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster. Come along and stock up on a huge variety of tomatoes and vegetable seedlings, fruit trees, perennials and more at our community nursery. 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Wednesday breakfast. Time right now is six. Oh, sorry, seven sixteen, and we're going into our first interview. Now, for a stretch of land that narrowly avoided being burned in the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires, the uh, state government is now allowing logging in this area. And only last week, local residents of the Tulangi and King Lake areas. Uh, were successful in halting logging in this very valuable forest. And to tell us a bit more about this action and also about the value of this forest, we're speaking to Adam Fletcher. Adam Fletcher is a uh, member of the King Lake Friends of the Great Forest and is also a local resident of the area and a, friend, a part of the Friends of Leadbeater's Possum um, and uh, joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Very well, thank you. Um, You're welcome. Thanks for coming on. Um, so I first, am the Lorax. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Well, glad to have you in person on the phone, Lorax. We'd love to talk about the value of this forest. Can you first of all tell us where um, where we're talking about and what kind of forest we're, we're thinking about when we're talking about the land that needs to be protected? Yeah, it's an area largely between, say, King Lake, Eildon, uh, covers um, the likes of Marysville, all the way down to Warburton, includes Healesville, and pretty much everything in between. So it's um, it's known as the Central Highlands of Victoria. Mm. And now the and, state uh, government intends to allow logging in the area, is that correct? Well, it, it's not that they're intending to allow logging to continue in the area. Logging has been continuing probably since the 1870s. Mm. Um, it's just that since... Uh, since around about the 1950s, that logging has become industrial in its nature uh, with the equipment that's being used. And to, today, uh, what is happening is it's known as clear-fell logging, so it, which basically means they strip the land clear. It's not selective logging, where in the past they would select uh, ind- individual trees. This is just clear-fell industrial logging that takes out everything. And what would be the impact of this logging if it were to happen in um, in this um, area of important this area? Well, I guess there's a number of number of issues to talk about around that. Um, firstly, is uh, the wildlife, the impact on wildlife. There are dozens of um, species that are now endangered, uh, including animals and plants. Um, Probably the most uh, well-known and recognised is the leadbeater's possum, which is critically endangered. Um, our Federal Environment Minister, Greg Hunt, at the time in 2015, uplisted it to critically endangered. Um, the, secondly, there's uh, another related uh, or, um, uh, possum glider, 
the greater glider, which was um, listed uh, by the state government as endangered in uh, 2017, and that was due to the fact that um, in, the, in uh, the last 10 years or so, um, numbers in this area have dropped by about 80%. Um, and um, that's probably a, a, a more concern or a major concern um, as far as wildlife goes. I would consider them a litmus test um, for the, the forest, the health of the forest ecosystem. Mm. Um, so, so, that's, so wildlife is one issue. Secondly, I would, um, I would talk about water. Um, more than 80, 90 or so percent of Melbourne's water comes from these forests. We rely on these forests to supply us with water. If Melbourne's a growing city, we need, we need uh, more security around our water. So when you log the trees, uh, the new growth, the regrowth that, that comes up uh, takes uh, uh, extra water, around about 100 percent more water than, than an old established forest. So um, if those trees, young trees, are sucking up more water, then we've got more, less water in our dams. There's less water in the rivers for, for uh, farmers and irrigators uh, across the state through the Goulburn Valley down into Gippsland. Um, you also make a point about the carbon sink value of these trees. Can you tell us exactly. a bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. So, so these forests are the most carbon-dense land-based forests on the planet. Um, I... Uh, make the point of dropping in there the term land-based because it's been recognised that mangroves are the most carbon-dense forests on our planet and um, I think we've heard recently that they're suffering also. Um, so these, these forests are the most carbon-dense land-based forests on the planet um, for the issue of climate change. Um, that should pique everyone's interest. Um, we, uh, the government and, and different agencies have, have done... Uh, done research and um, and it's been estimated that if we were to leave these forests standing and put them in, the, in a carbon credit or carbon abatement scheme the state government could earn at least $30 million a year just for having these forests standing um, as it is the logging is, um, is heavily, the current logging is heavily subsidised by the government um, they get grants and, and all manner of um, tax breaks to, to make the, the industry or to, to, to continue the industry. Mm, in our past uh, communication, you said that this amounts to about $45 million a year. Um, yeah, well, it, it, it's estimated conservatively at $30 million. Sorry, mm. the, the logging you're talking about? Or yeah, the, the, sub, the subsidies to, to the yeah, logging industry. Yeah, the subsidies. So over the last uh, 15 years since Big Forests was uh, extricated from, uh, from the state government and, and turned into its own company but still managed by the state government um it's been uh, uh biggest um, amounts are around about 43 million dollars oh, the government yes. that the big forest has received in grants and subsidies and and um research grant all all manner of sort of uh, you know tax breaks and and uh, and uh, money uh, to help keep them afloat mm. And now um, local residents and community members, are, uh, well, at least last week, were peacefully occupying the state forests in Murrindindi. Can you tell us a bit yeah. about what happened when logging was halted and what's happened since? Yeah, so basically last week um, some concerned citizens went into a logging coop um, up in uh, Murrindindi, just north of, of Talangi, a beautiful part of the state, um, and, um, and peacefully 
protested. Um, so I guess you'd call it civil disobedience. Um, and um, it's, it's um, it went, when they walk in, the the, the, uh, the loggers, the contractors who are working in those coops um, have to cease work. Um, and um, it basically amounts to uh, to uh, restricting their activities and um, bringing all the um, stakeholders, the um, uh, Vic Forest, the logging company, and the state government, and all others concerned, um, yeah, uh, uh, puts them on notice really mm. that um, that this is not business as usual. Yes. And do you have any information as to whether the, the logging has started back up again or um, if the, the occupation is continuing? Yeah, the, it was a one-day action, I believe. And there, there was also an action yesterday mm. that had a similar result um, as well. Um, mm. So I think the idea is that this is potentially going to be a rolling action, uh, random parts of the forest or random mm. coops, um, active coops. Um, people are, are looking to walk in and, and stop stop the activity, stop the logging. Um, and now local residents are sending a message in a new campaign that it's not time for business as usual or not business as usual. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. So I guess this um, this sort of leverages into or segues in with the uh, Extinction Rebellion campaign, the global campaign that's being incredibly successful. Um, I think that's one of their mantras. And it just seems so fitting here that um, all the all the stakeholders in the logging think that it's business as usual. Uh, there's minimal protection for wildlife. Uh, it's not recognised the the, the the benefit or the um, income the state government could receive from leaving these forests standing. So the not business as usual kind of mantra or campaign, if you like, is seeks to um, Put a wedge between into that, and um, and have those people stand up and take notice that um, this is a local issue. It's also a global issue. So locally, residents are concerned that the forests in their backyard are being logged, um, logged forests or new new forests, newly regenerated forests after the logging are more susceptible to uh, high intensity fires. So that's a concern for anyone living up here. Uh, that's one of the issues. I talked about the water earlier, the wildlife. Um, but globally, it is that, yes, these forests are the most carbon-dense on the planet. And um, and if we're going to do anything towards minimising this climate catastrophe, we need to look in our own backyard and save these forests. Um, it's been reported that these, if we were to keep these forests standing, they could contribute 5% of Australia's uh, Contribution towards its uh, Paris Climate Agreement um, mm. uh, that was uh, back in uh, uh, 2015, I believe. Mm. Yeah. And so, if uh, if local residents of um, the area stretching Eildon, Kinglake, Marysville, Tulangi want to get involved, I, I imagine you'd mm -hmm. like them to go onto Facebook and search for the Kinglake Friends of the Great Forest. Um, exactly. Outside of that area, how should we um, get in touch with you folks and find out more? Yeah, certainly chime in via Facebook. That's the best uh, medium. Um, also, look at uh, j just look at other groups uh, that are doing great things in the area. So there's, there is Friends of Leadbeater's Possum. Uh, there's Wildlife of the Central Highlands, uh, the Great Forest National Park campaign, which seeks to protect this area of forest. 
and um, turn it into a natural asset for the state. Um, I, I, I would like to say right to your politicians or right to the environment minister, that has proved futile um, during the term of this Labor government. Um, the, the, uh, the, the irony is that you, you probably get more leverage writing to the agricultural minister because the agricultural minister, Jacqueline Symes, has more say over these forests than our environment minister. Mm. That's a that's a good point, well made. I'm sorry, Adam, we're running out of time, but I'd like to direct people to the Great Forest National Park um, campaign, and also head over to King Lake Friends of the Forest, uh, Friends of the Great That'd Forest great. on Facebook. Fabulous. I've been speaking to Adam Fletcher, um, who is a local resident of the Tulangi area, and thank you for coming on 3CR to talk to us. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding? Well, volunteering to lead a neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40-minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training, so go to neighbourlyride.com to contact us about volunteering. A 3CR supporter. For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The lineup includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, and more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co-op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. 
It is currently 7.31am this Wednesday on 3CR Breakfast. Now we'll be talking to Deborah Brown from the Association for Progressive Communications. Um, that's an organisation assisting communications for activists and human rights uh, uh, endorsements uh, around the world. Um, we'll be talking to her about the recent crackdowns on civil society in Egypt. The crackdowns in Egypt have intensified, as recent demonstrations have intensified, um, which have been calling for the President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to resign. This is the first time in years that demonstrations have taken to the streets after a six-year ban on demonstrations under the LCC presidency. 220 people were arrested for demonstrations on the 22nd of September. So this leads to the question of whether or not the new generation of Egyptians will continue to rise up against LCC. Deborah, thanks for joining us today. Deborah, are you there? Thanks so much for having me. No yes, thanks so much for having me. Good morning. Morning. Thanks. For, oh, actually, <laughs> good afternoon for you. Um, so, first question is: I just we just maybe a quick background for our listeners. Why are demonstrations actually calling for LCC to resign, intensifying now in the last few weeks, leading up to your statement, which you did release a statement saying intentionally the intentionally disrupting access to internet services, which people rely on to access information organize, communicate, and document abuses by the authorities is inconsistent with international human rights laws and it must cease immediately. So can you give a quick background to these demonstrations and why they occurred? Sure. So starting late December, there were a series of videos that were being posted to Facebook by a former army contractor who now lives in self-imposed exile in Spain. And the former contractor was claiming corruption, that the president was squandering public funds and spending them on luxury palaces, and that he was owed something around millions of Egyptian pounds um, due to contracts. So basically, these calls for corruption sparked more widespread demonstrations that led to the calling for CC to step down. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's just been a consistent sort of... Because I know LCC has been under fire for corruption, previously multiple times. Um, so also that leads into the next sort of point. Um, you also released in your statement, history should serve as a lesson that cutting Egyptians off from communicating with the world won't diminish their will and the right to protest peacefully. Do you think that we could see a continuation or a re- repetition of the Arab Spring rising from this sort of, um, these demonstrations? Like, is this, do you think they're powerful enough to maybe history repeat itself or... It's hard to say, and I mean, it's also part of the challenge is there's so little communication or information coming out. We can't really see the full picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we do see is a continuation of Egyptians demanding their right to live in dignity mm-hmm. and to be governed in a way that respects and protects their fundamental rights. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the Arab Spring, that really reflects a certain moment in time, and that's something that's played out very differently in different Arab countries. Mm-hmm. So I'd caution against drawing too many strong parallels between what happened then in 2011 and what's happening now, because that could actually put in danger some of the people who are active in the Egyptian uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and we might even see the government making examples of them by arresting them, as like sending a larger signal to society by rounding up some high-profile activists who mm-hmm. were very active in the Arab Spring or the Egyptian uprising in 2011, but might not be playing as active as a role now. And they might have even changed the way that they see um, 
you know, their role within um, Egyptian politics. Mm -hmm. But I do think we see similar tactics being played out that we can draw parallels from. So just as former President Mubarak famously cut off the Internet, Mm -hmm. um, almost a near national blackout back in 2011, the CC government has been restricting freedom of expression and access to information online for many years now. So back in 2017, after a terrorist attack, um, he declared a state of emergency, which gave authorities really broad power to restrict online communication. Um, then last year, in 2018, two really important laws were passed, one on cybercrime and the other, the media regulation law, which gave the government broad powers to restrict online expression and to ban websites. So there's been hundreds of websites that were blocked um, as of last year, even before this recent crackdown. So I think there are some parallels for sure. I wouldn't be, <laughs> be hesitating to say that there is, you know, we can see a continuation or what to expect mm-hmm. moving forward, but there's definitely some trends that are reoccurring. Definitely. And I think social media as well, uh, now in 2019, I think it's going to play a larger Role, even if with the restrictions on online sites for Egyptians, I think. Like, do you think that um, awareness on social media will be enough for these crackdowns? Like, do you think that you know social media is going to help Egyptians make a change, like bringing awareness to the wider community online? I think it definitely plays a role. I think social media is never enough for for real change. Mm-hmm. This change happens on the ground. But definitely it's a piece of the puzzle and one tool that people in the country and outside can use. And I think that's a really critical point mm-hmm. because we've been in touch with, and I should mention APC's a membership-based organization, and we do have a member in Egypt and um, have friends and kind of people in the actress community there mm-hmm. we're in touch with. And they've made it really clear that they do want support and solidarity from outside the country. Yeah. It's very limited and they're, you know, at great physical risk by, um, being activists there, and they face much broader repercussions. So I think social media is a really key tool that people have to reach broader audiences, to put pressure on different political actors, and just to have more broad awareness. Um, and I think, I mean, going back to 2011, I think uh, Mubarak was one of the first um, governments to really do a widespread internet blackout. And since then, it's become really much more common. We're seeing governments all around the world use it, but less so, like, they're doing more targeted ones, as we've seen in recent weeks in Egypt. Not a full blackout, but just certain apps or certain periods or certain locations. So I think the outrage that happened in response to Mubarak's full blackout hasn't, unfortunately, stopped the the use of internet shutdowns, but has made it um, less acceptable, I think, to do such widespread ones. At least we haven't seen that in Egypt this time around yet, and I hope we don't. Yeah, no, they're doing it much more in a tactical way, especially like even Sudan and other countries, especially in that region and beyond. Um, more tactical ones to sort of, you know, seep through the, um, you know, try and get away with it more with the human rights breaches that they are taking when they do those blackouts. Um, you did mention that you did have relations and your, the APC has relations with people in Egypt. Um, so the long-time advocate for human rights and social justice activist Allah Abdel Fattah was arrested in those demonstrations in Egypt. Um, upon his release, Allah put out the um, hashtag for half freedom. Um, this is to raise awareness about his probation conditions. Can you elaborate on those conditions and whether these conditions would be similar to others arrested in the recent demonstrations? 
sure. And I'm just to have a brief update on Alonzo Patel. So he's someone we've worked with for a long time, and we've been, I mean, we, he's a friend of APC, and um, he's we've been in touch with his family recently. And just a, a few clarifications on his case. He was actually, he served a five-year sentence um, and was released like six months ago. Mm-hmm. And upon release, he, it was this, as you said, hatchery where he was forced to sleep at a police station each night and spend 12 hours there. So it wasn't like full release, but he was actually rearrested from outside the police station. Um, I'm getting, I don't know the exact date, but in early October. So he's, when I was saying that um, people who were active in 2011 are being rounded up again, he's, he's one I had in mind. And so we heard from his family um, that unfortunately they were able to see him last week, but he was really badly beaten um, injured physical and psychological abuse, and they're asking for help in speaking out and raising awareness about the situation. They believe he's in imminent risk of further assault and torture, and so they're really asking to get the word out um, about his situation, and there's been numbers of other people um, who've been arrested, and there's just, we feel really not enough attention to this internationally and not enough pressure on the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um do so in saying that is what are you guys doing what's the APC doing and maybe other sort of NGOs or human rights organizations what are they doing to bring awareness to these crackdowns or what are you guys doing to help you know bring awareness to these crackdowns in the wider community we're doing a few things and we're not alone there's a broad community of digital rights organizations and human rights organizations who are really concerned about what's going on there so three things that we're calling for are for the authorities to cease arbitrary arrests and release those who've been unjustly imprisoned um, and ensure their due process rights. And so we're very much focused on a lot situation, but of course, anyone who is in the situation as well. Second, we're calling for them to respect the protected rights of Egyptians to protest, assemble and associate online and offline. And third, to ensure the rights to freedom of expression and information by lifting internet restrictions um, on websites and, and other communication applications mm-hmm. and to commit to not disrupting access to the internet. So we're reaching out to governments is one thing. We, we feel that there's not nearly enough pressure from governments, especially those who stand up for human rights, who are advocating for um, freedom online in international forums to, to put more pressure on, on governments, um, sorry, on the Egyptian government to um, to do the three things that we mentioned, and then also raising awareness on social media so that there's more pressure broadly from um, from people around the world. Yeah, definitely. So would you recommend us here in the studio and all of our listeners to sort of get involved via social media? Like, what can we do here in Melbourne? Yeah, I think that's one thing that um, people in Melbourne can do for sure. I think also, I'm not sure to what extent Australia has spoken publicly or privately about this issue. So I think advocating to your government to say more, to um, put pressure on the CC government, at least um, on those three issues I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not sure if this applies in the case of Australia, but also we would like to see governments um, not just condemning, but also putting pressure, whether it's withholding military assistance or other types of support that government and what's really important is helping people who are in these really vulnerable situations in the country get out whether it's asylum or temporary temporary release so that they're not subject to arbitrary arrest upon their release if this is something that they want to do and so getting visas to human rights defenders or journalists or others who are in this position would be really important great okay well thank you so much for speaking to us this morning deborah 
That was Deborah. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. Thank you. That was Deborah from APC talking to us about um, the crackdowns on civil society in Egypt. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and before our next interview, we're going to play a song. It's a cover of Simply Irresistible by Bron. She's a powerful force, you're obliged to conform when there's no other cause. She used to look good to me, but now I find her.
From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. The time right now is 7.50, and we're going to move into a segment from Indigenous Rights Radio, which is a a program of cultural survival. Uh, Today is World Food Day, and what better time to acknowledge the importance of Indigenous knowledge surrounding the production of food and the eating of food. And so we're going to hear from a conference happening in Hokkaido, the traditional lands of the Ainu people. Every year on October 16th, millions of people globally gather at marches and exhibitions to observe World Food Day. Initiated by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, World Food Day is one of the most celebrated days of the UN calendar. More than a casual series of festivals, World Food Day is organized to bring awareness about food systems, food production and distribution. Presently, following the UN's call for action under the Sustainable Development Goals, the world is undertaking a global campaign to build a zero-hunger society. On World Food Day, indigenous peoples from Asia and Pan-Pacific are gathering at Hokkaido, the land of the Ainu, the only indigenous peoples recognized officially in Japan. Remy Lee, international counselor for Japan and president of Slow Food Nippon, one of the organizers of Indigenous Tere Madre event in Japan, explains that World Food Day for indigenous peoples is to celebrate their unique identities through food. International Food Day is a day to celebrate our each individual's unique uh, identity through food. So we celebrate by at home, within the community, maybe within um, Slow Food Convivia, the, the diversity of food that we have within ourselves, within our community, and maybe perhaps celebrating other people's um, food identity through cooking um, varieties of um, food and celebrating each individual's identity that is represented within the dishes that we share amongst family and friends. International Food Day for Indigenous people is a day to also have a platform to showcase their food to the world because not many times um, in recent history that indigenous peoples had an opportunity to show their food and food identity and ethnic celebration but providing a day of international food day such as this can allow other people to 
Understand, experience, and taste indigenous people's food. Food is no doubt a basic human need and right, but today climate change has impacted the quantity and quality of food production, resulting in decreases of food supplies. Relating to food production and food security, indigenous knowledge is something the world still needs to appreciate as it provides alternative paradigms not only for coping with diverse ecosystems in the changing global environment but also for addressing global food insecurity, says Remy. I think from what we can see and how we've experienced the climate change, we see so many changes, um, heavy rainfall, droughts, um, rise of sea levels, and this is causing many disasters in the agricultural fields and also fisheries. And um, the indigenous peoples have variety of seeds and varieties of species that they know how to eat compared to other developing societies that have gone away from hunters and gathering and um, are only dependent on few crops, don't have the knowledge that the indigenous peoples have in the, the selection of varieties of food. So what we understand in slow food is indigenous peoples' knowledge of how to eat varieties of food from the mountains and the oceans and the fields, as well as how to uh, utilize the knowledge of fermentation and preserving the food can contribute to the rest of the world because we're facing a crisis in food security. Daikita Bayasi, youth leader of Slow Food Ruku, who developed a network among local food producers and consumers by organizing the food festivals in Okinawa, Japan, further says that indigenous people's food systems are offering positive examples of solutions to global problems of climate change and food insecurity. Indigenous peoples living in different ecosystems are at the forefront of those affected by climate change. Moreover, their knowledge and food systems are disappearing fast globally due to poor documentations. Therefore, there is a need to talk about indigenous peoples' food systems and climate change. Indigenous peoples' food systems have been offering to the world positive examples of solutions to the problems of climate change and global hunger by promoting sustainable food systems that are socially, economically, and culturally just. These systems represent effective methods to preserve biodiversity, deforestation, reduction, address while also tackling hunger and prevention malnutrition. And while we talk about uh, climate change and indigenous food system is because indigenous people's food system is the first victim of the climate change. And also we can find the key element of how we tackle this climate change issues.
uh, within the so, uh, indigenous people's food system. Indigenous people's ways of life and their livelihoods can teach the world a lot about preserving natural resources, sourcing and growing food in a sustainable ways, and living in harmony with nature. In order to document indigenous knowledge by bringing the world's indigenous peoples together and to celebrate their rich and diverse food cultures and food systems, the Slow Food Organization created the Indigenous Tere Madre event. The foremost Indigenous Tere Madre event was held in Sweden in 2011, then was followed in India in 2015, and now the event is taking place in Japan, says Remy. So slow food recognizes many different aspects of food diversity around the world. And we, we try to preserve food cultures around the world through protecting um, species of food and recipes of food. But especially now we are working with indigenous peoples around the world. And through that, we, Slow Food has recognized that it is very important for the indigenous peoples to have a platform to speak for, from their own voice and to showcase their culture and to gather in one place and meet indigenous peoples that are in the industry of food to share their knowledge and experiences. So um, Slow Food has um, made a network called Indigenous Terra Madre and also has created an event called Indigenous Terra Madre for people to gather uh, who are indigenous and also for non-indigenous to gather and listen to the stories um, experiences and taste the indigenous people's food. So the last event was in Meghalaya, India, and this year will be um, for the Asia Pan Pacific region, will be in Sapporo, Hokkaido, in Japan. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate, and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counseling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR. We're coming up to 8 o'clock. Now, in today's headlines, kind of tying into our next story, um, is Marie F- Maria Falau, who's actually um, planning to leave her career in netball to join her husband, Israel Falau. Now, I mentioned this name as Israel Falau earlier this year, c- 
created significant controversy um, through the posting of homophobic and intolerant messages on his social media, for which he was then um, he was then kind of let go by his the NRL, kind of the rugby league, and condemned for his kind of his statements. Now Israel Folau came out and said, "Well, I am entitled to this um, expression due to his religion," and from there has kind of been this huge. Uh, Eruption of a kind of ongoing conversation, which is, what is your right to freedom in Australia towards, um, yeah, speaking your views and how much should you be protected by religion through that? So the government's kind of proposed this new bill. It's called the Religious Discrimination Bill. And Amnesty International has recently joined the conversation saying that this proposed religious discrimination bill will entrench division for generations to come. And instead, what we should be looking at is a Human Rights Act, which will um, kind of help enshrine protections, but also remove the ability to discriminate. So we have Tim O'Connell from Amnesty International to speak to us a bit more about the subject. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Edwin. Sorry, I'm, you're breaking up a little bit. You, you oh, me okay? yes, I can hear you well. <laughs> we'll see how go we on. go. Just let us know if anything's wrong in the interview. So, Tim, the proposed religious discrimination bill is dressed up in the rhetoric uh, to kind of make it seem like a protection bill, where the government's saying we're helping you protect your kind of right to uh, religious statements, no matter kind of what the cost to other kind of um, groups and identities. So what is this bill really when you strip all of the packaging away? Well, as we see it at Amnesty, after looking at it very closely, what we see is really license for religious groups to use mm-hmm. their beliefs to condemn and attack other groups in the community. Um, so, you know, groups that may be um, transgender people or uh, LGBTQI, um, it, it really is, is hugely concerning that those groups may now come under attack, this so-called bill, which protects religious freedom before their rights and freedoms. And can you kind of um, summarise, uh, Amnesty International has said, look, this is going to possibly create huge cultural division. And Australia is already kind of in this polarised state. Could you kind of summarise where, where do you think this could go in its kind of worst case scenario if it was enshrined in law? Well, I think what we've seen with the you know, Falau um, um, mm-hmm. the, the division that is potential from these kinds of laws, you know, laws that are thought out, potentially well Tim sorry you are Tim sorry you are breaking up on us could you just yeah, move sorry, yeah. <laughs> that's better I haven't moved I'm staying still <laughs> nice <laughs> sorry to interrupt you there that's alright um, yeah I guess it, it really is it, really concerning to Amnesty because obviously we've got a lot of vulnerable groups in the community um, mm. you know we saw how division in the community can spread so quickly and those vulnerable groups can really come under attack when we had the you know the crazy vote that the government put in place around marriage equality mm. um, where so many you know, individuals who identified in the LGBTQI groups really came under serious attack and, and, and those attacks weren't just at groups but they were individuals and people felt that enormously and the implications for them was, was really serious. Absolutely and Morrison's kind of continued this liberal legacy of uh, the silent people uh, which he uses to kind of rationalise a lot of policy decisions and this is kind of I feel who the Bill's kind of addressed towards or, or justified in his name. Um, does he actually have the support from Australians for this bill? I mean, the support that came out for Israel Folau uh, earlier this year was just significant. People were donating to his cause despite him being quite, quite rich. Um, there seems to be... Do, do you think there is a kind of call for this or do you think we're being led by a very small minority? 
I think it's absolutely. It's minorities, mm. you know, getting their voice heard over other potential minority groups as well. Uh, you know, and that is really alarming. And I guess that's why Amnesty thinks don't just target one specific uh, organisation or group in the community. Mm. And we saw a similar thing with the tax on press freedom, where there was a knee-jerk move to try and protect the rights of journalists. The reality is we need to balance all our rights, whether they're the rights to religious freedom, the rights, the rights for people from, you know, this group, you know, with disabilities or who, uh, you know, represent themselves as transgender, that they, you know, they all have, so have the same rights. And what a Human Rights Act would do is ensure that we can balance all of those rights and get to a place where all Australians' rights are protected and mm. freedoms are protected. And just touching on that, um, just before we move to the Human Rights Act, there are some damaging clauses in this discrimination bill I just wanted to go over with you. Uh, it's the ability to make religious statements that breach other discrimination laws. Uh, there's employer codes of conduct and a right for medical practic- practitioners to turn away um, uh, clients on, on their beliefs. Could you kind of step us through the consequences we could see through that? Well, you know, those things are really alarming. For instance, mm. if, you know, someone comes along to a doctor who practices Catholic, uh, and, you know, is seeking an abortion, even though a doctor signed the Hippocratic Oath, it puts them in a, a very difficult position if they then have the so-called right to deny that person an abortion. Mm. Um, it's not something that, that should be possible in a, in a country like Australia today. Mm. Um, you know, we can also see the, op- the, we've seen instances of this where, where churches, have denied people who identify as gay from practicing their professional expertise from teaching in their classrooms and mm. being denied that. This would really put that into law. And, and that, that's extremely um, alarming. And what sort of message does it send for other people who may identify with those groups, for instance, who are in the classroom? puts them in an incredibly difficult position uh, and further marginalises them and creates further division in our community. And we think that's why this religious freedom bill really should be, you know, turned away very quickly. Absolutely. So it's dividing dangerous and discriminatory, the, this proposed bill. Let's kind of talk about Amnesty International's proposed solution, uh, Human Rights Act. Could you kind of let us know what the, what the history of a Human Rights Act uh, in Australia is? Like, have, is this something we've been talking about for a while? Has it been proposed to the government before? Yeah, it's certainly something that's been talked about for a long time. Mm. People may not know, but Australia is the only Western democracy that doesn't have a Human Rights Act. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's interesting when... Um, you know, Israel Folau talks about his freedom of speech. It's not something that actually he doesn't is. have it. Uh, no, that's correct. Mm. You know, in Australia, we, we don't have it at all. Mm. Uh, we do have a Racial Discrimination Act, um, and you know, the Discrimination Act can actually apply in this this you know the instance of or potentially you know what is deemed that Folau said in terms of being hate speech. Um, it, it could very much come into play there, but we don't have a freedom of speech. So having a human rights act really protect all our rights. And really, rights are, are, are contested and balanced, and they should be. Um, so, absolutely, Israel Folau, if we had our human rights act, would have his freedom of speech, but it would need to be balanced against mm. the fact that he can't discriminate against other individuals or groups in the community. Absolutely. And kind of talking about how this would operate within the Australian, like the political mechanics, um, how, how would it kind of be enshrined? Like, what level of executive power would it have or control? Well, what we see at the moment in Victoria, mm-hmm. uh, obviously there's, you know, they were leading the way at the vanguard of this. They instituted their own state human rights act. We've seen since then the ACT has come on board. And also in, in, in Queensland, they've recently instituted one as well. It's something that obviously is coming up from the states, but, but a federal human rights act would really ensure that instead of a spaghetti bowl of legislation, which is what we're in danger of coming up with now, where all the laws cut across each other, 
Mm. It'll be one holistic approach to protecting all rights and give everyone the opportunity to have their rights protected uh, and also the responsibility to ensure that they protect the rights of others. So kind of create that collective culture of both upholding rights and actually having instilled rights. Um, finally, Amnesty International has made seven recommendations uh, for a Human Rights Act and they've passed this on to the federal government. Um, could you kind of discuss these around uh, what these recommendations are? Hello? Hello, sorry, Tim. Can you hear me? Hello? Oh, we've sorry, seen... I've, no, I've that's all right. Um, we're just going to come back in one moment. We'll just see if we can get Tim back. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And you're listening to 3CR. We're just jumping back into our interview with Tim. Good morning, Tim. Can you hear us? Yeah, I've got you back. Brilliant. Okay. So just kind of finishing up our conversation or, or touching back on our conversation, um, where were we? We were in... How a uh, human yeah, rights act. Seven things we needed. The seven things we needed. Right. That's right. Could you let us know a little bit absolutely. more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I guess you know, fundamentally, we need a right to recognition and equality, a right to privacy and reputation, a right to freedom of movement, a right to religion and belief, uh, a right to life, protect life, a right to peaceful assembly mm-hmm. and freedom association, and cultural rights. They're what we see as the absolute minimum that's required. Mm. And in, in having a Bill of Rights, you have a holistic approach which enables you to balance all those rights up against each other and ensure that one doesn't overtake the other and that we can um, ensure that all people's rights are protected and ensure that we protect the rights of others. Mm, absolutely. And I, I suppose just touching on, as I said, mentioned before, with Israel Folau, we really saw the country just divide um, and a whole lot of people who were deeply, deeply uh, believing in this bill kind of donated towards Israel Folau, but a whole lot of people um, came out against, against it. I suppose... What I'm, I'm saying here is that it seems to be a symptom of uh, a larger problem that Australia has. Would you would you say that Australia's maybe become more divided, and is and a human rights act could kind of address that? Could provide an alternate solution, which is kind of as you say, more founded in equity and will we'll actually meet those needs. 
Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think what we saw with Israel Folau was a, a relatively small number of people, but potentially quite mm. powerful people with obviously significant resources, you know, stand up. There's many of the other vulnerable groups that Amnesty works with every day, whether they be groups, you know, from Indigenous communities or the LGBTQI community uh, or people with disabilities, they, often they don't have the same kind of resources they can marshal. They don't have the same support in mm. sections of the media that Israel Folau has been able to capture. And mm. in this way, by having a Bill of Rights, we people who do have more resources than others can't overstep the rights of others, can't discriminate against others without having legal protection. Mm. Human rights really ensure that all Australians live in a much safer, more welcoming place. And really, that's what we all want to see. Fantastic. And you can read the submissions from Amnesty International at your website. Um, I'll read that off in a moment. Are there any other ways that people can kind of get involved? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got a petition that's up and going. I think we've got about 15,000 people that have signed that. So you can go onto the Amnesty website, um, you know, take action for a human rights act and ensure that all people's rights are protected in Australia, regardless of how many resources they have or how many media organisations they have behind them. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for uh, joining us, and thanks also for picking up the phone after those technical difficulties. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, I don't have a lovely morning. You too. Talk to you later. Bye. Listen to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We're going to go to another song called Swept Away by Shelley Morris.
Listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, that was swept away by Shelley Morris. And it's time for our final interview for the day. So in the studio we have Sheeta Chatterjee, who's a PhD candidate in architecture and urban design at the University of Melbourne, who specialises in a topic that I'm really passionate about, which is informal settlements and thinking about what we can learn from informal settlements. Um, so welcome to the studio, Ashita. Thank you very much for having me here. Thanks for coming in. So I first just wanted to ask, there's often there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about what defines informal settlements. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could explain to us what actually is an informal settlement and how does it different, differ from the terms slums and squatters? Um, the term slum, it comes from the English-speaking world and in there it's equated to something that's overcrowded, it has poor conditions, so it's about a condition. And it also gets equated to something that the modernist planning is completely against. But when you see the vernacular versions in the countries where there are informal settlements, it doesn't really have the stigma that the word slum has. The mm-hmm. word slum also, it's a static condition. Mm-hmm. The word squatter is related to ownership, tenure. So if you lack, you become a squatter. Now, informal settlements, the word by itself is verb and it's noun. So it's a process. So it's a process of using informality to work around what the formal um, mechanism doesn't really provide you an affordable housing. So that's why I like to separate these terms because it doesn't really let you understand informal settlements. So some of these informal settlements could be slums, they could be squatters, they could be both, but some of them are not. So what slums and squatters does is it like it takes everything to that denominator. Mm. It's one of those things that informal settlements can produce. Mm. But it's not necessarily all informal settlements yeah, of that. Yeah. yeah, great. And so within a lot of your research, I guess what are you finding as some of the common misassumptions or perhaps stereotypes about informal settlements? I think it's what we even discussed. Like not all informal settlements are slums. Not all of them are squatter. Some of them could start as slums and squatters, but they actually do change. So it's this process that the word slums and squatters, the slum and squatter is a static word. It makes it into a product. Mm. So that's what it doesn't allow you to see. Some of the other things are that um, the stigma that the word slum carries, it ends up stigmatizing the settlement dwellers too. So all these people are considered as dirt themselves, like not human enough to mm. be part of the civil urban society. So, so it's, there's a social stereotype, it's there's a spatial stereotype. And sometimes it goes into even education and other things, which are not necessarily true. Mm. And considering that, I think it's by 2050, one in three people in the world will live in slums and informal settlements. Mm-hmm. It's, you mm-hmm. know, to, to dehumanize a third of the population mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. pretty dangerous. Um, and I guess within a lot of the, the sort of the development context and sort of people working in this area, uh, one of the kind of more overarching aims is sort of moving people beyond the poverty trap. That's sort of a lot of the discussion. And so how can informal settlements actually play a role in helping communities move beyond this poverty trap? And if so, how can they do so? Um, so all the things that the World Bank UN has been trying, and if we just look at why it has failed, in the 1950s and 60s, 
slums got equated to poverty. So mm. what was the easy solution? Get rid of slums. You get rid of poverty. But then you're not really looking at what is creating the poverty. So what research has shown us that informal settlements become this way of answering the need for affordable housing, but it's also the scale, the number of affordable housing you need. Mm. So these settlement dwellers, when they are in informal settlements, there are trade-offs. So they would... Some of them would like to stay closer because of the location. So they're ready to stay in a settlement which doesn't have all the amenities, what we, the middle class and the elite, think that's necessary. Some of them actually want to save money for the education of their children. Mm. And this, so there are varied reasons. So what informal settlement does, it provides the diversity of the needs, which some of these formal settlements are not able to, and it locks them. So the possibility to open a little shop or convert your house into a workshop, which the formal settlements won't allow you to do. So what we've seen that through research, that informal settlements are a way to actually get out of poverty. Mm. So it doesn't lock you in there. So it might signify poverty in certain areas, but it is also a way to get out. Yeah, and so it's a really important place where people can kind of, sort of like you say, set up a shop or do something to kind of help them move beyond that kind mm-hmm. of poverty trap. And I guess also there's a very strong community often in informal settlements as well in terms of the sort of the informal economy and how people, um, from what I, my understanding mm-hmm. is that when people are put into more formalized housing, they kind of mm-hmm. lose the original sense of community and that's quite isolating and it kind of, you kind of step down a few steps. Um, but yeah, no, so definitely thinking about the sort of the, the benefits that informal settlements bring. Um, but something I wanted to ask is that sort of as someone studying this area, you're sort of trained to sort of see the merits and drawbacks of different sort of city designs more broadly, not just informal settlements, but just sort of more broadly. And there's a lot of discussion about amongst sort of architects and designers about how we shouldn't necessarily be applying sort of more, for want of a better word, developed world planning ideas to informal settlements. Rather, we should actually be learning from developed, developing contexts and informal settlements to actually develop our own cities like Melbourne much better. So what do you see are perhaps some of the urban design lessons that we could be learning from from these informal settlements? Mm-hmm. You actually t- touched upon two really important points. One, you talked about what the planning profession or architects, we end up think, thinking what we do. We end up thinking that we know design control. We know how people should live. So that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned. We know certain things that work, but we can't tell people how to live. Mm. Like It's this letting go of the control. That's something very important. And the second part of your question, you talked about context. I think that's important. Some of the things that can work in a Western context might not work and probably won't work in the non-Western context and vice versa. So the things that people are realizing that can be learned from informal settlements is when, when cities develop spontaneously, when you do not plan for what you want to achieve beforehand, you let the city and the settlement dwellers develop it based on their needs. So what that ends up doing, sometimes you get these pedestrian-friendly neighborhoods just because there's no need for a car there. Mm. And the settlement um, road widths are based on that pedestrian-friendly walkable uh, dimensions that you need. Sometimes uh, you end up getting a very mixed-use neighborhood, a very dense, compact, yet uh, for that area, probably that is working. So when we try to intervene and we try to propose something from outside, it's not necessary it'll work. So if you don't over-design, so if I had to say some of the things that I see in the 
Western world, things are over-designed, over-controlled. There are too many rules. Whereas in the non-Western world, there's there are less designs. There's a lot of room for negotiation, flexibility. Whereas informal settlements, it's the other end of the spectrum. There's too much negotiation. And I guess you kind of need that sort of that degree of openness in the mm. design of cities because it sort of enables people to bring their own ideas, their own identity into the city and actually make it their own rather than feeling kind of isolated from the design process. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's correct or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, also, like, there are different people, but we are also very different in the sense we change, our desires change. So some of the things, even if we know the client very well, you don't really know how the client is going to, their circumstances are going to do life changes. Mm-hmm. Your requirements change. So those are the other things that I noticed in informal settlements, that the ability to knock down a wall and build it and become something else, you know, Take a little bit of the street. Yes, it is a bit problematic when you think of the formal way of designing, but take a little bit of the street and give it somewhere else. And that's a possibility that's not there in these formal settlements because we first define the edge that beyond this we cannot go, we beyond certain things we cannot go. Mm. And there's so much ingrained knowledge within these communities mm. that simply someone as like a designer can't actually understand it. The community has to really own it and design it for themselves. Absolutely. Um, one of the other key challenges with improving living conditions within slums is sort of balancing improving basic services, but then also not displacing communities. Mm-hmm. And so through your work, what are some of the strategies that you think can help improve living conditions within formal settlements where that needs to be improved, um, but without having negative impacts of displacement or sort of breaking up a community? Uh, you actually answered that in the first question. You talked about community participation. That is very key. Uh, what um, research has also shown that in situ upgrading, meaning you upgrade them on site, sometimes certain settlements have to be demolished. It, they just cannot stand on if they're uh, if they've been built on garbage land, then because that garbage land doesn't provide the foundation, you'll have to demolish them. So, but you open it up to the community. You ask them what is your priority, what do you need, and we will break it. And we will provide that area. Sometimes you need to demolish few houses to create that open space. But Mm. when there's a dialogue, then they do not feel like they are being targeted. Mm. So they also realize that's for the data community and they're being moved a little closer. Not they're not on that on that street. What happens is this is generally a very slow slow process. Mm. The transformation doesn't happen so quickly and the beautification which the governments want from these cities it doesn't happen so quickly. And that is why it's not really. desired process but this is probably one of the best processes yeah great and for people who are interested in this kind of work how can they like either get involved or just read more about it to sort of understand the sort of how sort of i guess interesting and Mm -hmm. informal settlements are and how actually important they are to cities where should they go to look for information Mm, um i think if you are interested from a from an academic point of view so some of the institutes here are doing really great work the institute where i'm at um, this informal um, research hub info where we're doing some work. But otherwise, you can pick up a book. You can also go to some of these websites. But those are mostly um, the NGOs. They're looking at doing some work for one month, um, and probably that gives you some hands-on experience. Yeah, 
I'm not really sure if I can answer that. Actually. There's lots. There's lots of stuff out there. Yeah, it, it depends on what you want to do. Sometimes you can just give money and you can help. Yeah. Sometimes you can go and help there. So it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Ashita, for coming and talking about all your work. I think we should quickly wrap up the show and everything that we've had for today. So at 7.15, we had... We Will. spoke to Adam, who is an environmental activist who participated in the stop of logging up in the Tulangi area. And then at 7.30? Yes, yeah, so at 7.30, we spoke to Deborah Brown from the Association for Progressive Communications. We spoke to her about the current and past civil society crackdowns in Egypt. Great. 7.45. We've also talked to Tim at 8 o'clock uh, about um, the religious discrimination bill, which is pretty, pretty scary stuff. Tim from Amnesty International, is that right? Yeah. Um, what are we grateful for today? I am grateful for imagination, just sort of like <laughs> having time to kind of think about things that don't exist. I think that's quite exciting. I'm, I'm actually going to say I'm grateful about um, public spaces and city planning. I really appreciate you coming in today because um, I've been doing a little bit more research and it's amazing to see how city planning shapes the way we live. I'm grateful for mandarins. I know it's really weird, but I've got an obsession <laughs> three days. So. I'm going to double up on the being grateful for citrus. I think that's the end of our show. It is. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.